Good evening. Good to see you out this evening. Thank you for making this morning seamless. It really went well. I hope that you felt that it did. Um, I'm starting to figure out that if you want a shorter sermon, come to the 815 service. If you want a good sermon, come to the 1030 service. But that's probably assuming too much on my part saying that it's going to be a good sermon. That's kind of hit and miss, but thank you for making that go well. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 12. Paul writes these words. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In 1976, President Gerald Ford was campaigning for a second term in San Antonio. And while in San Antonio, he was served a delicious Texas delicacy. You know what it is, Barry? Tamales. Yeah. Now, we know how to eat tamales correctly, but President Ford did not. He tried to eat it husk and all. And this was a major faux pas, so much so that the media ran images of this over and over again. And some even think that it cost him the election. Because we all know that in order to eat a tamale correctly, you got to remove the husk because the good stuff is what's inside, right? So why do I bring that up? Well, because there are some in the religious world that believe that our body is nothing more than a husk. And the really good stuff is contained inside. But Paul would take exception to that. Paul, in this verse right here, as well as other places, in this passage that we just looked at, would say, no, that's not exactly true. The body that we inhabit is not worthless. It serves a real purpose. Now, some, and even many, many moons ago with the Gnostics, they believed that the flesh really did serve no purpose, that the body was needy. It needed water, it needed food, it needed sleep. It's just wasting away. It's just a shell. It's just a wrapper. Inside is what counts. And I think some in the religious world today often view the body as if it's to be tossed aside, and it really doesn't matter because what does matter is what's encased on the inside. However, that's not exactly true. The Bible does not paint that picture. Scripture does not support the idea that our body is just a wrapper and that the soul is the only thing that matters. God created Adam with a body first. Genesis 2.17, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
God didn't just create a soul, he created a person. He breathed life into man, thus animating him, right? God did not create you to be a spiritual ghost. He created a whole human being, body and soul. You see, we have looked at ourselves with this dichotomy sometimes in the religious world that basically says, I'm two things. I'm a body and I'm a soul. My body is the wrapper, my soul is the eternal part of me that lives on. But the Bible just doesn't make that distinction. Scripture teaches that all of it's important, that all of it matters. Body and soul are both eternal. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He writes, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your, vain is in, or your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." So apparently there were some in Corinth that were denying a bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection for the dead. And apparently these deniers did not comprehend how their denial was at odds with the very gospel that had been preached to them and the very gospel that they had obeyed. And so Paul goes on to make a case for how faith without resurrection, gospel without resurrection is meaningless. And in all truth, this is a hard doctrine for many to accept. Even some Christians. You mean God's going to put me back together again? And I'm going to walk out of the tomb? That's pretty hard to swallow for even us living in this day and age. We tend to get our idea or ideas of the afterlife from movies or cartoons, right? And so we envision ourselves as some disembodied spirit floating around on the clouds, maybe playing a harp. You know, we've talked about this before. So when we read Paul's words, we can sort of understand where the Corinthians were coming from, some of these resurrection deniers. I mean, you can imagine them saying, seriously, like our bodies are going to be resurrected and changed in some way, but we're going to go back and get our body and we're going to walk out of the tomb? And Paul says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 20? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits here means the first with many to come. So Jesus is raised first, and you say, but yes, Chris, but he wasn't. He wasn't raised first. There were some other people who were raised before Jesus, wasn't there? Like Lazarus, right? Uh, The widow of Nain's son, they were raised first. But the difference is what? They had another funeral, right? Jesus did not. He left the tomb, and he left it completely. And that was the end of it, right? And Jesus is the first fruits with many to come. And so those who follow Jesus, who are disciples of his, will follow him right out of the tomb. Just as he left, we will leave. Now, this is a hard thing for some to swallow. There are some who, who have a hard time accepting this. You mean to tell me that my spirit is going to leave paradise, it's going to be connected back with my body again, and I'm going to walk out of that tomb? You know, we kind of think of zombie movies, right? You know, reaching up from the ground and coming out and lurching around semi-lifeless. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. 
It's hard for us to fathom this kind of thing, just like those resurrection deniers back in Corinth. What about the cremated? What about those who have been burned beyond recognition? What about those who are in a wheelchair? What about those who are crippled? Will I, will I have six-pack abs? Will I, will I be in my 20s? What will I look like? And Paul doesn't say. We don't know. Those questions aren't answered. What will we look like? Well, Paul says it will be immortal, that our body, our new body will be imperishable, that it will be powerful. That's all he says about it. Neither weakness, nor disease, nor deformity, nor any other ailment will plague these resurrection bodies. Paul does say that they will be spiritual in nature. Now, how do I know that he is talking about our physical bodies here in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, because the word that he uses for resurrection is the word anastasis. And do you know what that word means? It means to raise up. It means to rise from a seated position. It means to be raised from the dead. So if your current physical body is not what's being talked about here, then what body is he referring to, right? And secondly, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul speaks of how our bodies will be changed. So if Paul isn't talking about our current bodies, then what body is going to be changed, right? Immortal, imperishable, powerful. And then in verse 44 of 1 Corinthians 15, he specifically states, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now, we talked about this in an earlier lesson, but we are wrong to assume that spiritual is the opposite of physical. And we see that in the religious world a lot, don't we? We see this dichotomy made, this, this contrast between spiritual and physical. That's how we often use the word ourselves, that spiritual is kind of otherworldly and physical is fleshly. But Paul is not saying that. Paul is not making a contrast between spiritual and physical. He's actually making a contrast between physical and natural. The idea is that our resurrected bodies will be so much more than our natural bodies because our spiritual bodies will be the result of the Spirit's power, right? They'll be of supernatural origin. In other words, we will not be disembodied spirits floating around in the sky somewhere. By definition, a spirit has no body, and we are promised bodies. So, we cannot be spirits when resurrected. Jesus, being the first fruits of the resurrection, promises that there's more to come. You keep looking in 1 Corinthians 15, this time in verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Since the fall of man, humanity's biggest problem has been a lack of access to the tree of life. Both Adam's sin and our sin is the root cause of the problem. But our most pressing problem is what? We've talked about it before. Our most pressing problem is death, right? We're all going to die. Death is the enemy. Yes, sin is a big problem. And yes, we've got to confront that. But also death, we're all going to die. Now, that's not a problem for someone who's in Christ, but for someone outside of Christ, that's a major problem. That's what Paul said, for you were dead in your transgressions, and we say, yeah, we're spiritually dead. No, he means dead. You're all heading towards death. And for those who are in Christ, that's not a big deal. But for those who are outside of Christ, it's a very big deal. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the key to victory? What is the solution to the problem? Resurrection, right? Resurrection. Jesus is our Savior. His blood cleanses us from all sin. However, don't pass over the fact that 
He is also the resurrection and the life. And that whoever believes in him will live even though he dies. For those of us who are children of God, death will be undone. For the faithful, the final enemy will be defeated. Our biggest problem solved. And i got to tell you, 1 Corinthians 15 is heavy on my mind and heart this coming week. Because I have three funerals to do. And all three of them are are for wonderful people of God. You don't think this provides some hope? You don't think we mourn differently for our loved ones who have gone on before that are in Christ? We don't mourn like those who have no hope, right? So hopefully you understand that the whole body and soul, all of it goes together. We are holistic beings. We are all one. Both will live on in eternity. The Bible does not teach that we will be disembodied spirits floating around up there somewhere. The Bible shows us the emphasis is on resurrection. Paul's emphasis was on resurrection. Scripture emphasizes what happens when the Son of Man returns. The biblical hope is on resurrection. Now, at this point, there may be more questions, right, than answers. Like, so where do we go when we die then? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that our spirit or soul goes back to God and the body returns to the dust of the earth? Paul said, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. And I would say, yes, I I agree with all of that. I think that when we die, the righteous go on to paradise until the day of the Lord in which we will be resurrected. But immediately upon death, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. If I were to die right now, I believe the Bible teaches that my spirit would depart from my body and go to be with the Lord in an unseen realm known as paradise until that great day when Christ returns and my spirit and body are reunited and I walk out of that grave along with all the saints. But I plan to talk about that at a later date, so I won't get too deep into that. So, Paul would be appalled (laughs) at this notion that we're all like tamales. That we just have a husk, but what really matters is what's on the inside. I mean, God created you. He created your body, right? He created the body of Adam first, and he said it was good. All you have to do is read Paul's writings to see that he wouldn't support a notion that says the body is just a husk. What really matters is what's contained inside. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 again, starting in verse 13. It said, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise up, us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. I, I think if we get nothing else from this passage, we should learn that the body has a purpose. And why wouldn't it? I mean, God made it. Like I said, after he made it, he claimed that it was good. And yes, sin brought about the curse upon all of God's creation. That was not good, but God didn't abandon his creation. And that's important to keep in mind. He could have, but he didn't. Even when he destroyed the earth with a flood, he didn't obliterate it. He kept eight humans and every kind of living thing of all flesh. He kept the world, though he destroyed it with a flood. He didn't annihilate it. And the reason why is because he had a plan. And do you know what we call that plan? We call it very simply redemption. And this is a major theme of Scripture. And therefore, when Paul talks about the body and resurrection, he's got to be talking about this. Redeeming. Redemption. Because it's the entire theme of Scripture. 
But, and this is big, but Paul says that our body serves a purpose in this life. Unlike what the Gnostics believe and some in the world of, of Christendom and the realm of religion, some believe that the body is just disposable and the spirit is really what matters. Remember, to a, to a Jewish way of thinking, and Paul was a Jew first, right? And so was Jesus. To their mindset, body and soul went together. It was all one. They, they didn't make that dichotomy like we often do. There are different aspects to us, but ultimately, the whole person is really a soul. When you read through the creation account, soul means living being or living creature. So when we think of soul or when we read soul in Scripture, what we should be thinking of is life or being or individual. When you hear about, you know, say a plane crash and they say 200 souls on board perished, do they mean disembodied spirits? No, they mean people, right? When you think soul, think people. It's, it's our, your spirit is what moves you. It's what, it what, it's what animates you. It's your breath. And when your spirit is gone, you're dead, right? Because nothing else to animate you. We need to abandon this thinking and teaching in the religious world that the body and soul are at odds with one another or that the soul is the meat while the body is the throwaway husk. This husk has a purpose. And you say, well, what is it? Well, according to Paul, a major purpose for this body is to house the Spirit of God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Go back to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verse 16. It reads, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, understand that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking collectively, not individually. He's saying that the church is a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You, me, all of us together form a place where the Spirit of God dwells. But in chapter 6, Paul switches from a broader or narrower view of the spiritual house of God by pointing out that God's Spirit not only dwells in us collectively, but it also dwells within us individually. I may have said that wrong. He's switching to a narrower view from a broader one is what I meant. So now he's going from collectively to individually. You were created to be a dwelling place of God. The fall of man messed that up, right? We were intended to be icons, E-I-K-O-N-S, image bearers. We were to be the image bearers of God. Obviously, the fall ruined that or at least hurt it greatly, but God didn't scrap this whole bodily creation thing and start over with some other format. No, instead, he devised a plan which we would still carry out his purpose even though we failed miserably. And you know the plan. We call it what? We call it the gospel, right? We call it the good news. That's the plan. The gospel is all about redemption. It's all about God paying the price. He bought us back. Before Christ came, those going to the temple were not allowed access beyond a certain point, except for the high priest, right? So there, you could only go so far unless you were a high priest. No one but the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies because that was the place where God dwelled. But now everything has changed, and not only are we granted access to the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies dwells in you. God turned you into a sanctuary. You are a dwelling place. And you say, okay, that's great. So, so what? I mean, that's a valid question to ask. So what does all this mean? 
And the answer is everything. It means everything. This all echoes of Exodus, where God redeemed his people by delivering them from slavery. Through magnificent signs and wonders and by showcasing his great might, God rescued his people. He didn't bring them out of captivity just so they could you know, go and live the, their separate lives on their own terms. He delivered them so that they could become his people and carry out his plan. And they failed. And so Jesus came. Jesus came to complete the mission to take up the slack where Israel failed. We were enslaved to sin, but Jesus redeemed us by delivering us from bondage. But He didn't rescue us just so that we could go and do whatever we want and live life on our own. Because anytime you live life under your own authority, you wind up in sin, right? You wind up in captivity again. We were bought at a price. And that price was someone's life. We owe everything to the one who redeemed us. And therefore, we should glorify God in our body. You'll remember that in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus enters the temple and he starts cleaning house. You remember that? He comes in, he turns over the tables of the money changers. And the reason why is because that was not the intended purpose of the temple. There was a marketplace. They could go and visit it, but it shouldn't have been in the temple. The temple was reserved for holy activity, not for selling doves and cattle and things of that nature. God's intent for the temple was not for it to be the marketplace. They had marketplaces. Matthew 21, verse 13, it says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. The temple was being abused, and our Lord wasn't happy about it. I want to close with this invitation. How's your temple? Does it need to be cleaned? Need to turn over some things? Does it need to be power washed in the blood of Christ? Is it being abused? Are there some idols that need to be removed? I want to encourage you tonight, before you leave here, get your house in order. Make sure that you are a dwelling place for God. And if you need our help, then why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.